Hey folks, welcome to the House of Kraus. I'm Richard Kraus. Come on in. Make sure you shut the door though this time. You left the door open last week and we got a draft through here. It took us ages to warm the place up again. It's all nice and cozy now though, so pull up a beanbag chair next to the fireplace, get cozy, and listen to my conversations with two really interesting people. A little bit later on, Natalie Brown will be here. She's going to talk about her experiences making the movie XX premiering it at Sundance in the middle of a snowstorm and it's a, a really interesting film. It's a horror anthology uh, produced, written, directed and starring women. Natalie will be here shortly to talk all about that. First up though, director Richie Keene calls his debut film Fist Fight an R-rated John Hughes film. Let's find out what that means. The movie stars Ice Cube and Charlie Day from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia which, by the way, Richie Keene was the house director on, uh, as two teachers who settle their differences the old-fashioned way in the school parking lot after the final bell. Uh, let's find out how it is a John Hughes movie and uh, kind of how it isn't a John Hughes movie. Here's Richie Keen talking about Fist Fight. You grew up and became Richard and I'm still Richie. <laughs> I haven't really grown up though, to be honest, if the truth be known. Right. Uh, congratulations on the film. Thank you so much. Uh, tell me a little bit about the meeting uh, with Ice Cube. You know, I, I've met him once. I found him really intimidating. I hear you did as well, but you had to travel a little bit to uh, have your original meeting with him, right? Yeah, it was so interesting. After a very long process of me trying to convince people to take a chance on me because I really was on no one's list. I uh, really had no chance at getting this or maybe any movie, um, uh, and especially at New Line where they work with a lot of the same filmmakers over and over. I had somehow, over the course of time and really passionately presenting my vision, won over the producers and the studio and Charlie and... I had even met with Ice Cube's manager, who by the end of the meeting was like, you're awesome, I love your version and your vision of this movie. So I thought, at a certain point, I was like, oh, we're good. And then I got a call that uh, Ice Cube wanted to meet me, and I said, great, you know, where? I live in L.A., and they said Atlanta. Um, and he only, he's leaving Atlanta tomorrow night so so suddenly i was like oh wow okay uh the studio was picked up my plane ticket for me and i got in a car and went to the airport and was brought to a hotel to wait for ice cube you know i was given a time he'd be there but it was also sort of like yeah he might be there at three he might be there at five yeah you know who knows um and i uh went up to my room i had dressed in a nice outfit you know, as my, my, my good Jewish parents taught me to do when you have a job interview. And I started drinking coffee. And as time passed, I started getting more jittery and more sweaty. And by the time Ice Cube was waiting in the lobby, I was in a T-shirt and sweaty. And, you know, I was down. To, I'd taken off the button down in the tie. And, um, but I went down and sat with him. Look, he, he is the nicest guy when you get to know him. But at the end of the day, like, I'm a huge NWA fan. I'm a huge Ice Cube fan. The guy wrote No Vaseline. Like, it's intimidating to meet him. And and he, there's something about his presence, too. I mean, I've been been lucky enough to work with a lot of 
famous actors and actresses in television, and there every once in a while you meet someone. I, mean, I remember, and this is going to sound weird, meeting Danny DeVito was intimidating. I think he just had such a, he's had such a brilliant career, and he's such a talent, and I felt in a different way intimidated by Ice Cube's talent, but then I felt intimidating, intimidated by the fact that he's Ice Cube, and he's, a, he's just a badass motherfucker. So I sat in that lobby with him for about 45 minutes, and I went through a very detailed presentation of not only what I wanted the movie to look and feel like, but how I felt like we could tailor this character to him so it was something different than what he had ever done before. Um, the funny thing was, as I was pitching this, he's such a nice guy that fans kept coming over and wanting his autograph and wanting, you know, we're sitting in a lobby and he's nice enough to say yes to everyone. So like, I find myself like taking people handing me their phones so I could take pictures and, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to like, this is guy my, my life's dream. And, um, but it was really funny. And I told this story at the premiere, um, because I said to Ice Cube at the premiere, uh, in front of everyone, you, you don't remember this, but this is a transformative moment in my life. But I just finally finished the whole thing and he seemed like he was into it. And I just said, cute. We doing this? We making this movie? And he just smiled. He kind of leaned back in his chair and he thought for a second. And he said, "You know what, man? You flew out here at a moment's notice. I love what you had to say. Let's go make a movie, motherfucker." And he held his hand up to give him like a high five. And I was like, "Oh my God! Okay, Ice Cube just just said that to me. I need to seem cool." And uh, uh, and and that began a year and a half long partnership. And um, and I just couldn't respect a person more than I respect Ice Cube and he has just been a sh just such an amazing partner and um, I, I can't say enough about the guy I know we're going to make another movie together we're just trying to figure out what it is oh cool cool something else that'll like uh, well I guess you don't know yet but push the envelope a little in a different direction for him maybe I think so I mean we're we're, we're, we're playing with you know he, he's got he's such a in-demand guy. He's got a number of different things he's developing and working on, and and I pretty much he knows like you know, for me if I can just, if I have a take on something I want to do it, and if I don't I don't because I feel like there are a lot of projects out there in both television and and the feature world that can be serviced by any number of directors. You know, with Fist Fight I had a really specific point of view. I wanted it to feel like like a prison riot. I wanted it to feel like the inmates were taken over from the prison guards, and I wanted to sh find a, a rundown school, and I wanted to really shine a light on the public school system and not, not be heavy about it, but I did want to ground it in something, and I tried to lens it that way as well. And so with anything I'm looking at, whether it's with Cube or anyone else, if someone sends me something and I don't have a really great point of view on it, I just say it. I just say, look, this could be funny. I just don't really, um, you know, I don't really have a, a take. You know, and, you know, and, yeah. Well, th this in, in by moments almost reminded me of the longest yard or something like that. You know, they're just sort of yeah. in, in the in the the kind of dynamic of it all. Now, uh, th am I hearing this correctly that you grew up in uh, in Chicago and snuck on the set of Ferris Bueller? Was that yes, yes, yes. And what what did you want to be a filmmaker then, or was it just like a cool thing to do? No, yeah, it's such a great question because um, I I did not want to be a filmmaker. I didn't know anything about it and I just couldn't believe they were making movies in and around my hometown I mean I grew up in the 80s in suburban Chicago in Highland Park Illinois 
And initially, I remember the first two movies that came to town were Ordinary People and Risky Business. Wow. We used to go over... We, our friends owned the Risky Business House. We, my dad would throw the football around with Tom Cruise. I mean, he wasn't Tom Cruise then. He was, a, he was an actor on a set. And I was, you know, a, a little kid, and John Hughes started coming into town. And, and Ferris Bueller, there's some great scenes in, in my hometown. And um, in particular, the scene where Cameron kicks his dad's car and it goes off the, the, uh, you know, the roof of the, 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 the garage into the ravine. But, yeah, man, I would hop on my bike. I mean, that's how close it was happening. I would hop on my bike, and I'd, I'd ride, and I'd go watch them film. And in high school, it was Home Alone. And um, I just thought it, was, I thought it was cool, but also, this is going to sound strange, but every time I was on or near a set, I was like, this is where I should be. It just, was, it just lit me up in a way that other things didn't. Well, there's probably something about being exposed to it in that way it looks possible to you you know if you had never seen it you may never think oh yeah well one day i could do this but you know you got to sort of you know your dad got to throw a ball around with tom cruise you were able to to see that it's actually possible to do this for a living mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah it's very cool um so you say that you don't do sweet moments tell me what that means well so, like I said, John Hughes was, was like one of my idols, yeah. and he was so good at doing that. And, you know, he, you know you'd, you'd see a movie, and you'd be laughing your ass off, and there'd be such a real, great, sweet moment. You know, with this particular movie, and especially coming off of being a, you know, a house director on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, I didn't want to be too earnest about any of it. You know, even with the stuff with his daughter, I, I wanted to make sure the payoff was shocking. Um, you know, that, that song we used in the movie was different than what was in the original script. Um, so, you know, certain things earn your, your attention to something with sweetness and with heart. You know, I think watching Charlie with his daughter deserves it. And I think other things like watching the teachers with the kids doesn't earn it. Right. And I just have my radar up a lot to make sure that, you know, that the heart, especially in this movie, comes from a very real character place. Because even though outrageous things are happening in the movie, I feel like um, a very typical note that a director and writer might get is we need more heart here. We need more heart here. You know, we need... And for me, what they're really saying is we're not connecting to the characters enough in this beat. So I just was very careful to make sure that, for, especially for a rated R comedy, about two guys punching each other a lot, uh, that I didn't try and infuse false, sweet moments. And I think we walk a really good balance, especially with having both a father and daughter being bullied on the same day and dealing with it in different ways and how they ultimately stand up for each other in different ways, to me, that says more than a really good talk between those two people would or could. Well, I think that the rap scene that they performed together, Charlie and, and the little girl, uh, is, I think, my favorite thing in the movie because yeah. it's hilarious, but it's also really sweet in a, in a kind of an odd way. And when they, they shut off the backing track and she keeps going because she's finally found her voice. She's finally found this, this, this power that she has. And, uh, and the little girl in the audience is kind of cowering a little bit. It works really, really well. 
I appreciate that. You know, what, what's amazing is, and this, this speaks to Charlie Day and what an amazing partner he is, in the original script, which uh, Evan and Van uh, Robicho, uh, Evan Susser and Van Robicho wrote, which is fantastic and made us all want to do the movie, the daughter was just a fan, was a fan of rap music, but it wasn't that song. And when I found that song and sent it to Charlie and said, I think we should do this, he had the idea that, oh, my God, we should have the daughter getting bullied then because this is such a, a tell-off to someone, this song. And he, that was Charlie's great idea that we then put into the script, which was, it, it, yeah, it was really interesting before when the daughter wanted him to show up and he couldn't show up, and then he did show up and they were going to do a number together. But this made it really, really interesting. And again, from a character perspective, gave you that connection, you know, and really showed you why Charlie would then decide to stand up for himself by helping his daughter stand up for herself. And it doesn't feel saccharine at all, which is what the cool part of that is. Yeah. I think it's funny you say that because I think everyone thinks it's being teed up for like an about a boy moment where like, you know, he's going to show up and they're going to have a really heartful, you know, performance. And we just completely undercut that. But, But it still works really well. You yeah, know, thank you. So, very cool. Uh, is this the longest fist fight ever on film? It's a great question. Um, <laughs> I, the, what I said we have to beat was They Live, right? Um, which I think is such an amazing <laughs> beatdown. Yeah. Um, I'm like, we got to beat They Live. I, so, we did beat that. I thought that was the longest fight in cinema someone told me there might be a longer fight in a Clint Eastwood movie but they also said there's a big break in the fight so it's almost like there's two fights that's a cheat yeah uh, I do think we're the longest fight but, but, but so, so whether I'm right or wrong or not I do know we are the biggest fight there are the amount of punches the amount of brutality and again in talking about tone it was really important to me that it feel real and that when Charlie has a moment in the fight that is really big, it'd be either because he's smart or be because he stumbles. Right. And, like, you know, like there's a moment where he flips Ice Cube into a bus, and it's like he really just tripped over a bag. I didn't want Charlie to ever have sort of, you know, superhero-type, you know, born-identity-type moves. I wanted, I wanted them using books, and I wanted them using staplers, and I wanted them using lockers, and I wanted them using all the things that they knew. And... Because I, I kept joking, we have a poster with Ice Cube and Charlie Day. How does anyone believe that this fight lasts longer than a punch? This has to. We have to. We have to make this fight surprising and brutal and funny at the same time. Well, it works. Uh, tell me, lastly, for me, uh, tell me about working with Tracy Morgan because you were going to do a TV show with him before his accident. Uh, and then that sidelined things for a couple of years. Tell me about bringing him on board. You knew him before, uh, and, and what was it like having him back? Oh, that guy is one of a kind. Um, I was lucky enough to be asked to direct and produce his FX show uh, by the guys who created It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, and then he had his accident. And when... I know his agent, uh, Steve, very well. And when I was putting the movie together, Steve said, what about Tracy Morgan? It was his idea. And I said, you know, you know I'm obsessed with that guy. He's, he's one of a kind. He would add so much to this movie. And I just, but he hadn't been on TV. No one had seen him right. at this point. No one knew if the guy could walk, let alone be right. funny so or have brain damage. Out on Saturday Night Live that time and all that, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that hadn't happened yet. Mm-hmm. So um, I Skype called with Tracy, 
Um, and I, <laughs> like 15 seconds in, he's talking about like why Chewbacca and Han Solo are the real love story of Star Wars, and, and I'm like, oh, he's fine. He's he's himself. He just he you know he just might be a little rusty, and he might, we might need to kick off the cobwebs a little bit. And um, you know, there was definitely concern about is he healthy enough? And but I said I believe I know he's going to be great, and. Um, you know, he was nervous. I mean, he, I wouldn't talk about this, but he was actually on the Today Show today talking about this. I mean, he was nervous. And um, he, I saw him. We were, I was about to say action for the first time, and I thought, oh, wow, I get why he's nervous. He has, this guy hasn't acted since his accident. I mean, he didn't know if he was going to walk again. And I just went over to him, and I put my hand on his shoulder, and I just said, this is such a special moment for me. I can't believe I get to be a part of the next phase of what you do. You're you're one of a kind. You're brilliant. I got you. Don't worry. Let's have fun and just be you. Just do do you. Be you. And he smiled and said thank you. And from that moment on, he's funnier than I've ever seen him be. That was Richie Keen talking about meeting Ice Cube for the first time. Great story there. Working with Tracy Morgan and sneaking onto the sets of John Hughes movies. Very cool stuff. Fist Fight is in theaters right now as we speak. Natalie Brown. Now, if you were paying attention years ago, you would have seen her face as the face of Heinz Ketchup. She was the Heinz Ketchup girl. Years later, you would have put a name to that face, watching her on shows like the sitcom Sophie, where she played talent agent Sophie Parker. Uh, She was on the ABC series Happy Town. You've seen her in Regenesis, Naked Josh, Mutant X, uh, Dawn of the Dead, Welcome to Mooseport, How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. It goes on and on and on. Uh, Most recently on shows like Dark Matter and The Strain. Right now, she's on the big screen in a movie called XX. XX is a very cool anthology horror film uh, directed, written, and produced, and starring all women. Uh, Fascinating stuff. She stars in uh, an episode called The Box. Young boy is with his mom, played by Natalie Brown on the subway. There's an older man with a box. Young boy, curious, says, hey, what's in that box? And then he sees something that changes things for the entire family. Won't tell you anything more than that. We'll get to it eventually. First up, we kind of join the conversation uh, sort of in the middle here. Natalie's talking about debuting the film at the Sundance Film Festival during one of the worst snowstorms they've ever had. Not to jump ahead, but I had no choice at Sundance because there were no cabs to get around. And their surgeries were 950%. So my eight dollar oh cab ride the next day when I really needed it was a hundred dollars US. No. And I and I had people banging on my window offering the driver hundreds more just to get them up the hill because it was a snowstorm. But we'll yeah, talk so, about that later. Well, yeah. So you were in Sundance. Natalie Brown was in Sundance. Uh, Good morning, with, by the way. I didn't w- say hello. <laughs> with XX, and uh, we'll talk all about XX in, in the next little uh, segment. Uh, but you were at Sundance with it, and you like me had an experience where because uh, I was in uh, the West Coast this week earlier and. It took me 12 and a half hours to get from Victoria to Toronto because of uh, a couple of inches of snow in Victoria. And then it kind of, you know. There were 10 feet in the two yeah, days so I was there that about, fell. Tell me about uh, how pampered film types like yourself deal with that. <laughs> there was no pampering. Um, can we swear on this show? No. Okay. Well, it, the way I described it, it was a sensational, awesome-ish show in yes. the snow globe. Right. Um, 
you know, it's just so overwrought with so many teams and people and sponsors that yeah. it's really difficult to get around. And the learning curve was huge. And a lot of places were private parties and at capacity. And it was hard to get a meal, even though there was like Nobu pop-ups everywhere. Right. And, um, <laughs> and so you just need a really good footwear, a really good parka too, just to get around. It was a lot of schleppy. And they have the free shuttles, but it's like getting to the shuttle and then, you know, walking home at three o'clock in the morning after your after your premiere, which was fun. Like it's all right at passage and yeah. marching up to the Planned Parenthood party because mm-hmm. the, the rental cars had no snow tires and couldn't get up the mountain and actually got too much snow to ski. They had avalanches when I was there and we were all suited up with our rentals and then got turned away because the lifts were all shutting down. At, so at, too much at, snow at Sundance. At, yeah, at a place that they, they're not unused to snow. It's a I ski would town. Think. It's a ski town. Yeah, and there was this poster of Robert Redford with a bubble over his face at this cafe that's been there forever said, not exactly what I had in mind, guys. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I was invited to the Planned Parenthood party, and every Sundance, it's normally a massive party. Lena Dunham is the host, and they have to turn away several hundred people. So they planned an even bigger, inclusive, big bash, and the minute Trump got elected, they had to cancel because the axe was so swift in coming down with funding. And so Kickstarter actually donated a home that they have that they give to independent filmmakers that may not have the budget to host events, and it was up the mountain. And you had to give... um, emergency contact information and a lot of, I was like, should I be worried? But again, taking every precaution and then being there was so special because it was a small group of women and included Edie Falco and Chloe Sevigny and Jenny Clark and a lot of people that, you know, this cause means a lot to them. And the women from Planned Parenthood were like, they had just got news that day. The gag order had been enforced. Um, four pieces of legislation to come down where it's like, no, you, you can't just say, well, this is the new normal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is the time to fight. This is the time to fundraise. This is the time to have your voices heard. Our rights are being taken away. You know, we're going back 30 years. Um, so, and it was also the day after the Women's March. Mm-hmm. I had just missed the Women's, I, I left the day of the Women's March here, and then we landed just post the right. Women's March at Sundance. Um, but it was just great to have everyone rallying together, and there's never a more important time to, to stand up and, and fight. And you have this notion of like, God, we're so sick of hearing singers, actors, celebrities talking politics. But if you have any platform to spread positivity, inclusion, or to fight for whatever your causes are, then now's the time, whatever your platform may be. We had a Christmas party this year and uh, loads of people were, were jammed into our place. And I was in New York just after the election, and I bought a Donald Trump plate, and I had it on my my coffee table, and someone was really offended by this thing. They're like, how dare you, sir, have this in your home? You weren't I, serving Greek food so you could smash it? No, no, I, it, I bought it. Uh, because for one thing, to sort of commemorate this like completely weird time in history, and all the money, all the proceeds went to Planned Parenthood. That was uh, at a place <laughs> called Fish Eddie in in uh, New York. They're selling Donald Trump plates to raise money uh, for Fish Eddie. So that's great. Yeah, yeah. I that's like donating the... in Pence's name. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I kind of like the, uh, the 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 twisty turny nature of all that. Well, Cal Penn, when he had those horrible tweets against yeah. him, go back to your country, who's yeah. an American who served under, you know, served for yeah. Obama. And so I, I donated and I think he raised $150,000 yeah. in the troll's name. Yeah, so. no, I love that too. <laughs> we were just talking about you uh, being at Sundance. So big premiere at Sundance. Uh, you are the star of one of the short films that makes up this 80 minute long uh, um, uh, collection. And 
it's a very cool story. It's written by Jack Ketchum, mm -hmm. and it essentially starts off with you and your kids on the subway, and there's a slightly, well, it turns out kind of slightly sinister-looking man, and he's got a big box, and your son is saying, what's in the box? What, is it a present? What's in the box? And he looks in the box. We never see what's in the box, but it affects him, and mm -hmm. it ends up affecting the entire uh, family. It's really creepy. But, yes. Yes. And when it was on the page, though, because so much of it for me was kind of visual. When it was on the page, was it as creepy for you? It was. I mean, in the original Jack Ketchum story, it's actually a male protagonist. It's right. the father with the issues. And I think Ivanka wanted to sort of subvert the expectation of, like, this nurturing mother who's so connected to her ch to her children. And, and it's it's not... You know, mothers can and can experience that sort of detachment as well. And so, and also as mandated by this premise, it's all female leads. So um, uh, it was definitely creepy. But of course, when you're there, uh, certain scenes definitely um, uh, transgressed what yeah. whatever you thought was going to be happening. And uh, it's a lot of things aren't nearly as creepy until you watch it. But even being there and, and saying the words. And yeah, there's one scene that we won't, uh, again, like uh, almost adults, I can't tell you what happens in it, but you're in an uncomfortable position, I think, probably for a long time. <laughs> Figuratively. Yeah, and, and it has to it has to do with some body horror. We won't, you, you have to see it to to uh, uh, get the whole thing. But, you know, when you're shooting something like that, you're not thinking, wow, this is going to be really scary because you've been in the stain, you know, all sorts of stuff. I mean, you're used to this world a little I'm bit. I'm not, actually. I'm still no? a pretty big scaredy cat. And really? everyone else shooting, even like there's, my kids in the movie, they're incredible actors, and they loved it. They were so excited to just dig in, <laughs> shall we say. Um, but uh, Yovanka was very kind. She gave me a book that she'd written about horror. Right. And uh, I was reading a book on the psychology of horror, why it's necessary. Uh, it helps kids exorcise unconscious feelings they may have that don't have the words to express themselves. Right. So clearly I'm the one with the issues, and <laughs> I'm, I'm working on them slowly. Well, I think that people... Uh, go to see horror films because they like to feel scared and they like the adrenaline rush that comes along with watching horror, but they like to do it in a place where you feel safe and in a movie theater very or, well said. or at home, you know, watching on your on your television. You, you're, you're in a safe environment, but these crazy things are happening in front of you. Mm -hmm. And for very me, well that, that that is uh, an interesting, I love horror films. You do, see, I don't find that an enjoyable feeling at all. Really? So this is really good therapy for me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm dying to do a comedy and the horror just keeps coming. <laughs> Lessons still to be learned. Lessons still to be learned. So um, tell me uh, a little bit about why it's important then that something like XX comes out all female led in all categories, producers, stars, actors, uh, directors, everything. Why is that important? Well, Yovanka's been in the horror genre for years. She was editor of Rumor Magazine, yep. and she saw a void, especially in the horror genre, which can be male-dominated, and yep. uh, the roles for women are sometimes either the victim, and she felt that there there was uh, a space to have female voices told, so she invited other filmmakers. And initially, it was supposed to be Jennifer Lynch, Mary Heron, right. uh, women in the genre. Um, and, I mean, in the end, they were so busy working, which yeah, is yeah. a great problem to have, and then found uh, other great voices like Annie Clark. It was her first time directing. Um, and Hers Roxanne is Benjamin. really kind of odd and funny she and admitted, off and she's, she's also the indie rocker St. Vincent, and yeah. she admitted at the premiere that she doesn't like horror either. She <laughs> scares so easily, and she was still breathing... Her heart was racing after watching the anthology. Um, but yeah, the, 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 the only mandate was just to, to be inclusive, to include right. women and, and, um, and from their full creative license.
Time magazine named XX as one of the, quote, 25 female-driven books, movies, and shows that we can't wait to get our hands on in 2017. How cool is that? That is pretty cool. I think Ivanka was so pleased because it wasn't just genre Mm -hmm. um, journalists that were interested in this film. It had such, I don't want to say crossover appeal, but, I mean, everything from, from Rolling Stone to Time to Vulture to Vogue. Yeah. wrote about it and it is so timely coming out the day after the women's march and how important it is to have women's voices heard natalie brown how fantastic is she so much fun to have in go see xx she's terrific in the first of the four movies that make up this what i was calling in a very fancy way a portmanteau what it means it's an anthology four movies for the price of one Four movies in just 80 minutes. Go check it out. They're all terrific. Thanks to Natalie Brown for coming by. Thanks to Richie Keene. His film Fist Fight is in theaters right now. Most of all, though, thanks to you for coming by every week. The House of Krauss door is always open for you. Come on in. Just knock first so you don't catch us doing anything weird in here. Uh, But come on in. Make sure you come back every Monday for sure because we put a new show up every single Monday. You never know who's going to stop by for a visit. And who knows? It just might be one of your favorite people. So make sure you come by.